In the last year here in Texas, my girls and I have visited many a playground. There's one that we especially love. Phoebe started calling it the John McGlott Playground. Others know it as Chisholm Trail Park. But John McGlott invited a few folks there for fellowship early on in the life of our church, so my family lovingly renamed it. The only trick with the John McGlott Playground is that the parking lot and the playset are pretty far apart. Between them, there's a long, winding sidewalk in the middle of a very large open field. So when we arrive, it's important that we make our way carefully all the way to the playground. My girls love to walk. They just don't always walk in the right direction. And they often get distracted by the shimmering things in the grass on either side of the sidewalk. It's actually an easy place to turn aside and fall away from the right path. But there I am, doing my best. Come on, girls, we're going this way. Don't touch that. That will hurt you. This is the way we're going. You get the picture. Sometimes you have to be really careful not to stumble while you're walking. And especially if you've got little kids, you know that stumbling can be a big day-altering deal. You get one bad scuff on the knee, a little bit of blood, a lot of crying. We've turned around and gone all the way home before. If you're going to get where you're going, you can't stumble or stop. You have to keep going. You can't turn to the right or to the left, but you have to walk the right way all the way. Walking is actually one of the Bible's central metaphors for being a Christian. As we're following Jesus, we're also walking with him. But just like the way to the John McGlott playground, we can stumble in our walk with Christ. Sometimes we're even in danger of falling away from him altogether if we're not careful to watch how we walk. This morning, we find the disciples in Mark chapter 14 stumbling in their walk with Christ. So listen to God's word in Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 52, as I read. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, 
He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came... He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I want to speak to you this morning about the antidote to apostasy. Apostasy means falling away from Jesus. It's when someone who once identified as a Christian stops identifying that way. Today, you hear people use words like deconstruction or deconversion or ex-evangelical to speak about this. It's when someone stops claiming to be a Christian. Apostasy is the word for that. But why speak about apostasy from a text like this one? It's not because the disciples apostatize. That's not what Jesus means in verse 27 when he says they will all fall away. This falling away is more like stumbling in their walk with Christ. Some call it backsliding. Here, Jesus clearly points to something temporary, something that 11 of them will be restored from eventually if we just keep reading. But backsliding sometimes grows up into apostasy. The seeds of apostasy are sown in the small act of stumbling in faith. Denying Jesus in one way often leads to denying him in other ways. And that shift can be very subtle. So you have to be careful. The only real difference between stumbling, like the one we see in this passage, and apostasy is persistence. Add stubbornness to sin and you'll end up in apostasy. And here's the thing, church. You will stumble in your walk with Christ. 
Much like these disciples here, you and I will sin against Jesus. But I don't want you to leave him altogether. I don't want your stumbling to turn into apostasy. And so I think we need to listen to what God's word has to say to us. God's word gives us the antidote, the solution, the remedy, the answer to apostasy. How do you keep from falling away from Jesus? Surrender your self-reliance. Surrender your self-reliance. That's the big idea this morning. That's the antidote to apostasy from this text. The sleepy but self-confident disciples in this text are a warning sign to us as Christians. The warning sign of this passage reads, self-reliance won't save you. We're going to look at this narrative with two different lenses on. I want to survey the whole landscape of the text from two different angles. Let's consider first... You are so weak, it would surprise you. And if you just want to help me out and write down in your notes, I am so weak, it would surprise me, that would be great. That's my first point. You are so weak, it would surprise you. And then second, Jesus is so strong, it would surprise you. Jesus is so strong, it would surprise you. Why do you need to surrender your self-reliance. Because self-reliance is at the top of the slippery slope of stumbling that leads into apostasy. Look at how this text exposes the disciples' weakness. This is the first point. They're so weak, it would surprise them. Look back at what Mark uses to frame up the narrative in this section of Scripture. In verse 26, they sung a hymn right after their last supper together. Then they move out to the Mount of Olives. And in verse 27, Jesus looks at the people he just ate his last meal with, the 12 people on earth who have been walking with him for three years, and he says to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus here prophesies that all of his disciples will deny him. He's quoting Zechariah 13, 7 here, which we heard in our scripture reading this morning. He adds, I will, just to highlight how God is the one doing all of this. Regardless of what Judas and the chief priests and the scribes may think, God is the one who is striking the shepherd, which scatters the sheep. And you can see how this prophecy is fulfilled before we even get out of Mark chapter 14. The shepherd is struck by his betrayal into the hands of sinners, which Jesus refers to in verse 41. And then Mark shows us that narrative in verses 43 to 49. Jesus even concludes the section by saying, let the scriptures be fulfilled, which I take to be referring back to this scripture quotation of Zechariah in verse 27. Now, you need to know the scattering of the sheep just is the falling away that Jesus speaks about in verse 27. And that falling away there is the word for stumbling. It's where our English word scandalize comes from. One translation even has it as, you will be made to stumble. The point is that their loyalty is about to be tested and Jesus says they will fail. They will not pass the test. Did you see how the disciples respond to Jesus? Peter says in verse 29, 
even though they all will fall away, I will not. But listen to what Jesus says to him. You are so weak, it would surprise you. That's my paraphrase of verse 30. Notice though, it's not just Peter. When Jesus tells Peter he'll deny him three times that night, Peter replies emphatically, it says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And catch what Mark tells us next in verse 31. And they all said the same. They all said it. Even if I have to die, I won't deny you, they all said. You know what that is? Self-reliance. Do you know what I mean by self-reliance? Let me tell you first what I don't mean. I realize there's a good kind of confidence. Some things take know-how. You need to study or cultivate skill in your work. You might need to take ownership, practice some self-discipline, exert significant effort. It's like this week, Ben Lacey took a door out of his house and put a wall in its place. That takes some self-confidence. I'm impressed by that. But I'm not talking about self-confidence. I'm talking about self-reliance. Self-reliance is overconfidence. It's to put too much stock in your skill or your strength or your smarts. It's to put too much stock in self. Too much confidence in yourself is the danger of self-reliance that I'm warning about you about in this passage. I'm saying there's an area of your life where no matter how much you study, no matter how great your skill, no matter how smart or strong you are, self won't help you. I'm talking about spiritual things. When it comes to your life as a Christian, your walk with Jesus, do not put trust in yourself. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to surrender self-reliance. Self-reliance is a stumbling block for walking with Christ. Why? Because relying on yourself is failing to rely on Jesus alone. Listen, church, we live in a time and a place in which self-reliance is one of the foremost values. In our culture, you believe in yourself and you can do anything. Just think about all the messages and motivational posters that tell you to follow your heart. This week, Anna and I were watching the premiere of Survivor, that reality TV show where people are alone on an island for 39 days. One of the contestants said in episode one, quote, I'm here to prove me to myself. Let's not kid ourselves. That kind of stuff can be dangerous for you spiritually. You need to know that there's one area of your life where self-reliance won't be a help, but a hindrance. It's your discipleship. We can see the emptiness of self-reliance in discipleship right here in this text. We won't even have to wait until the next day to find out that Jesus was right. All of the disciples will in fact desert him and disown him. You can see it in verse 50. Look down there. It says, and they all left him and fled. What happened to all their resolve? It ran out. Their drive dried up. Their motives moved elsewhere. 
And I think the young man in verses 51 to 52, it just underlines the total and complete desertion of Jesus. That young man, so terrified, so focused on his own safety, so turned away from Christ that he runs away without any clothes on. It'd be like yelling, every man for himself. These resolute disciples don't see their own weakness. And their wrong view of themselves actually obscures a right view of Jesus, their Savior. I think for us, this also means we can't be following Jesus because of who else is following Jesus. And listen, I've had good friends walk away from Jesus. It's terrible. It's disorienting. It's deeply painful. But you can't be following Jesus because who else is following Jesus? Jesus alone has to be sufficient. Jesus only has to be enough for us. If we stop following Jesus because of others who stopped following Jesus, then we should wonder if we were ever trusting in Christ alone to begin with. Jesus has to be enough for us, even if it's only Jesus. Look what happens to these disciples after they all swear not to deny Jesus. It says in verse 32, They went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was across the Kidron Valley from the city of Jerusalem, somewhere near the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane, the name, means oil press. The name comes from the olive orchard there and the way they'd press those olives to get oil out of them. Because when you really put pressure on something, you see what's inside it by what comes out of it. And what comes out of these disciples when they're under pressure? It's weakness. The Gethsemane narrative is located right here to expose their abiding weakness. Why else does Jesus come and find them sleeping three times in the narrative? In the Bible, the number three is often the superlative, the greatest or highest degree of something. You just think about, for example, how the angels cry out that God is holy, holy, holy. Why? Because he's the holiest. There's no one holier than him. Something being repeated three times in the Bible is like it being bold or italics in your Word document. Repetition underscores. It emphasizes what's being underscored here by Jesus finding the sleeping disciples three times, their weakness. Especially because they just swore they would never deny him. But here they are doing that very thing. These weak sheep can't even stay awake, so they're going to get scattered. When Jesus says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, he's making a statement about human nature. You can see a few examples of it here in the text. In verse 37, Jesus Jesus asked the disciples if they could watch for even just one hour. In verse 40, it says their eyes were very heavy, so they fall asleep. And in verse 41, he comes a third time and finds them sleeping still. I bet you know something of this experience. I know I do. I've had many extended conversations with myself in my head about the thing I desire to do that I can't seem to get my body to do. It's like waking up early to work out. I lay there wanting to get out of bed in my spirit. But at times, my flesh just can't seem to do it. The disciples' sleepiness here in our text just highlights their spiritual weakness. 
It highlights their spiritual sickness. And so Jesus, the great physician, gives two cures for our human ailments. He gives us two prescriptions or two medicines to fight off the symptoms of our sin disease. It's what the disciples here should have been doing. Verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's what we need to do if we don't want to fall away from Jesus. This is the antidote to apostasy. Surrender your self-reliance because that won't save you anyway and instead watch and pray. You need to notice first how watchfulness and prayerfulness go together. Peanut butter and jelly is not strong enough. It's more like peanut butter and chocolate, but that's not even strong enough. The union between these two is tighter still. Watching without praying is just overconfidence in ourselves, the sin of self-reliance. It's disregarding our need for the Lord's help at every moment. Praying without watching is spiritual laziness, the sin of presumption. Prayerfulness without watchfulness is mysticism. It's a form of vanity masquerading as spirituality or piety. That's because watchfulness expresses our diligence in discipleship and prayerfulness expresses our dependence in discipleship. So trade in your self-reliance for reliance on God through prayer. Try to make prayer your first impulse, not your last resort. As John Owen said, he that would be little in temptation, let him be much in prayer. You know that means you're going to have to plan to pray. I confess, saints, I'm not as systematic in my prayer life as I am in other things like reading. To my shame, that's a particular weakness of mine. But Jesus says we need to pray. He also says we need to watch. A lot could be said about the spiritual discipline of watchfulness. Here I just want to point out three things I learned recently from a great little book called Watchfulness, Recovering a Lost Spiritual Discipline by a pastor named Brian Hedges. First, you've got to know your own heart. You've got to know your own heart. You need to study yourself, saints, to see what entices you to sin. What do you desire that you don't have and what fans those desires into flames? You've got to examine yourself and pay attention. You need to keep track of your heart because biblically, your heart determines your life. Second, you've got to guard the gates of your soul. That's how Hedges puts it. Guard the gates of your soul. Do you remember the five senses that you learned in elementary school? Sight, sound, taste, touch, smell. Well, that simple child's lesson has serious spiritual significance. Your eyes, ears, mouth, hands, and nose all act like doorways to your soul. All the things you see and hear either help you to love God and your neighbor, or they help you to hate God and your neighbor. This is why we have to be careful what we regularly consume. Some TV shows just cultivate worldliness. I've heard it said that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's why we need to stay alert and use discernment. I'm trying to teach this to my oldest, Phoebe. 
I've introduced the idea of a lie about insignificant things, so she'll be able to detect lies about spiritually significant things. So when we're watching something and we see something or hear something that we shouldn't hear or see because it's harmful for us, we say, discernment. And I told her to raise her finger like that too. (laughs) We need discernment. Everything you see and hear is not helping you love God. So either avert your eyes, cover up your ears, or at least use discernment about what they're saying that's not helpful to you spiritually. Disregard. All right, you've got to watch. If you want to watch, you've got to know your own heart. Guard the gates of your soul. And third, don't give sin an opportunity. Don't give sin an opportunity. What I mean is, after you've repented of a fresh sin, consider why you sinned. When you're tempted, what is common to those experiences? Look for patterns. And then make a plan to stop putting yourself in those situations. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's what Jesus says. If you want to do this, you'll have to plan to do it. It's like designing a home security system for your heart. It's like standing on the wall of a castle and looking out for an oncoming assault. It's like a soldier who's deployed in battle, always ready to defend against an attack. When you think you're just a breath away from denying Jesus, you'll watch and pray. You'll make every effort to fight sin and temptation. And listen, saints, the only hope you have of fighting sin is avoiding temptation. If you enter into temptation, you should just assume you will give in to temptation and sin. Why? Because you are so weak, it would surprise you. And so am I. What comes into clear focus in this passage is not merely that we are weak, but also that Jesus is strong. Jesus is so strong, it would surprise you. The passage contrasts our weakness with his strength in one and the same narrative. His strength is shown especially in his steadfastness. See, Jesus is so unlike us because when he enters into temptation, he remains steadfast. In fact, Jesus is the only one who remains steadfast. I think we see the son's surprising strength in two steps in this passage. We see he suffers under great agony, but he remains steadfast. And then we see he suffers at the hand of a friend's betrayal, but he remains steadfast. Jesus always remains steadfast. First, let's look at his suffering in Gethsemane. Glance down at the description Mark gives us. In verse 33, Jesus is greatly troubled and distressed. In verse 34, he's very sorrowful even to death. Notice he's not dying here, but he's in such turmoil that it feels like dying. Another gospel writer includes that he sweats so severely that it was thick and heavy as like drops of blood falling to the ground. In verse 35, Mark tells us Jesus himself even fell to the ground. If you don't understand the significance of Jesus' death in the Bible, then you won't understand why he suffers in agony here. Jesus is not afraid to die. For Jesus, death is nothing to fear. Because for a righteous man, death is just the gateway to glory. But Jesus' death is unique. And there's a hint of it right there in the passage. If you look at verse 36, 
Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. In the Old Testament, this cup is an image of the wrath of God. See, Jesus wasn't just dying the death of a righteous man. He was going to suffer God's wrath, which the unrighteous deserve. That's why he's in agony here. He's not afraid to die. He knows he's going to suffer great pain as he becomes the sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath against all of his people. In our sin, we have earned God's judgment and wrath. But Jesus absorbs the wrath of God on the cross so that his people won't have to suffer God's wrath. That's the reality that's so terrible and troubling that he prays and asks for God's help. I wonder, if you're here this morning and you're not following Jesus, do you see the significance of Jesus' death? Do you understand that we all deserve the wrath of God because of our sin? You might think of sin as just a simple mistake. I'm only human. We all make mistakes. That's true. Sin is something much more significant, though. You realize this. If you punch me in the face, there's not a lot I can do to you. You punch a police officer, you could get arrested. You punch the president, that's treason. What changed? Not the offense, the one sinned against. When you sin against someone who is more significant than anyone else, the punishment you deserve is the most significant. Sin against God, that's worthy of eternal punishment in hell forever. Because that's how good and glorious God is. And yet God is also gracious. He offers a way that we won't have to suffer the wrath that we deserve by sending Jesus to live a perfect life, die the death of a sinner, and then rise from the dead and offer forgiveness to everyone who will turn to him. I want you to do that this morning, today, if you haven't done that. If you want to know more about what that looks like, I'd be happy to talk to you after the service, or you can talk to any member sitting next to you. We love talking about Jesus. Notice how Jesus prays in the face of suffering there in verse 36. Jesus asked for God to change his lot, and yet Jesus ultimately submitted to God's will. Brothers and sisters, we need to do the same if we want to be his disciple. You can ask for God to change your circumstances. Jesus did. But you also need to submit to what God chooses to do with you. Just like Jesus did. Getting good at giving up what you want for the glory of God is a sure sign you're growing in grace. And no matter what you're going through, church, remember that our Jesus is able to sympathize We can cast our burdens on the Lord in prayer because he cares for us. He is able to sustain you. Jesus offers a unique comfort in the midst of suffering, in the midst of our suffering, because he himself suffered greatly. And it was all according to God's will. So see his strength in how he remains steadfast in Gethsemane, but also see it in how he remains steadfast in the face of a friend's betrayal. Jesus has surprising strength. Last week, we saw how Judas served as a tool for the religious leaders to accomplish their secret murder plot. Now we see that sinister scheme transpire. I want you to notice the sign of Judas's betrayal. 
It's the kiss in verses 44 and 45. In verse 46, Jesus is seized because of that kiss. In ancient times, a kiss was used as a greeting. It was a sign of hospitality and friendship. It often signaled family affection. Kisses were especially given to a superior as an expression of respect and honor. Usually that kind of kiss was given on the hand. And it's especially typical between rabbis and their disciples. Did you notice that Mark points out again that Judas is one of the twelve? It's because this disciple's kiss is the worst kind of treachery. It's tragic. And it's just especially sinister to me that it was a kiss of all things. But isn't that exactly what we do when we sin against our Savior? When we do the things that caused his agony in the garden, the things that brought the wrath of God upon him, we're the disciple betraying Jesus. In this text, it's not just Judas who betrays Jesus. We're told all the disciples deny Jesus and fall away. They're all betraying him, either in giving him over to be killed or in abandoning him once he is given over. There's a sense in which this whole passage is just a bunch of lessons for discipleship. This text just shows us a bunch of wrong ways to follow Jesus. And there's one more we haven't touched on yet there in verse 47. One of Jesus' followers picks up a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. You can see Jesus doesn't approve by what he says in verse 48. You don't need to use a sword against Jesus because he's not the type to pick up a sword to fight. See, Jesus is no revolutionary. He's not leading some military conflict. He doesn't even resist a wrongful arrest. Because as Jesus would say elsewhere, his kingdom is not of this world. So he and his followers don't use the powers of this world to fight. That means they shouldn't use the sword. If we want to follow Jesus, we've got to use the right means to do so. He doesn't want us to pick up the sword and fight back. Jesus hasn't given the sword to the church anyway. He doesn't expect us to pass laws to perpetuate Christianity. You can't do that anyway. It's a spiritual religion advanced only by spiritual means. You can't produce more Christians at the edge of a sword, so don't try. That would just be another wrong way of following Jesus. Like the ones we've been seeing all morning, it's just another form of self-reliance. Relying on human means instead of relying on God alone. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to surrender your self-reliance. Laying down your dependence on yourself and picking up dependence on Jesus alone is just another way of describing repentance and faith. I said at the beginning this morning that the difference between stumbling and apostasy is persistence or stubbornness. If you want the antidote to apostasy, it's repentance. When you're in sin, turn from it. That's what repentance is. Repentance is the way to avoid falling away forever from Jesus. And saints, we can repent even of our stumbling. He's so good, he takes us back. So if you're here and you're straying from Jesus, I don't want to see you stumble into apostasy. Don't let your stumbling be an occasion for apostasy. You may not have even denied Jesus with your mouth yet, but I don't want you to continue on this road. Turn back to Christ. 
He forgives all who come to him in faith. This shepherd was stricken even for scattering sheep. So don't trust in your own steadfastness, but in his. Even if you've strayed, just return to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Jesus will save everyone who comes to him in faith. Even when our grip on him is weak, we can trust that his grip on us is strong. Saints, the better glimpse we get of our own weakness, the greater we'll understand the strength of Jesus to save us. The stronger conviction we have of our own misery, the more significant will be our sense of his great salvation. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Though we fall and fail, Jesus never did and Jesus never does. The shepherd was struck for our sins and we all like sheep scatter in our own way, but Jesus never wavers in his love for us. You are so weak it would surprise you, but Jesus is so strong it would surprise you. Self-reliance can't save you, but Jesus can. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is always steadfast, ready to save us, to forgive us if we just come to him. Would you help all of us, Lord, whether we're struggling in sin or whether we're underneath sin, not even struggling. Would you help us to recognize our own weakness and then to look to Jesus for the strength that we need. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.